What's up, ladies and gentlemen? This is Joe Bonamassa from New York City. Um, it's been a minute since we've done a live from Nerdville, and we did about 75 um, broadcasts uh, in the last year and a half. And um, finally, I said, well, I'm going back to work, and uh, I'm only going to do them on the special occasion. And um, so we've been kind of doing them randomly. And uh, I, when I say special occasion, I mean really special occasion. I cannot believe that I'm about to chat with the one, the only, Mr. Steve Vai. He's a friend. He's been a guitar hero of mine ever since I didn't, know, didn't even know who Steve Vai was. I just saw him in that movie, Crossroads, which we talk about a lot. And um, he is just a gentleman of the highest order and one of the most talented and prolific players of all time. And he's Italian. I love it. So check out my one-hour conversation with the great, the legendary Steve Vai. Joe, what's going on, brother? Good to see you. Good to see you. I, you know, I was just checking your tour schedule. Are, are, are you currently on tour? Cause it's no, no. I was, actu I was actually supposed to be. Right. Yeah, I, t I had a, a, a North American leg that was to kick off at the end of January and right. go for about 55 shows. Yeah, and uh, you know, I we booked, you know, to drill, right? You know, with right. COVID, we just don't know anything that's going on. But I wanted to get out, <clears throat> and I booked that tour. But over the uh, a year ago in December, I actually I, ha I got some some shoulder work. Right. You know, a couple of years of getting challenged, and I got got it fixed. And uh, you know, I, I made my record, but it it takes like a a year for something like that to heal. And I did something stupid, and I retore it, and uh, I got to get it cleaned up. So we just took the first leg and kind of bumped it to the fall. Right, right. You know right. the drill, Joe. Oh, I know the drill. I, I saw the one-handed video. You're the, the right, <laughs> armor, right armor. I was like, I was like, man, you know, like I, mo most of us mortals couldn't do that. With yeah. four hands, you're doing a one, you know. You know, you get enough. To, you get enough uh, sustain and distortion, and you tap and pull, and it's not that difficult. Um, I had to do something. Yeah, That's, exactly. Got yeah. to make lemonade out of lemons, brother. You know, it's weird. I found in the last two years because that you know, like the, the the prevailing narrative is like, oh man, all the guitar players in the world must just be you know in in their houses woodshedding and working and i go well maybe i'm the only one but i i, I don't really play at home anymore you know what i mean i, I kind of uh, yeah. i need an excuse to do it you know it's, well you you more than most artists i know tour like a madman i mean yeah. you are on tour i gotta tell you a great story uh it, when you were when you were younger and you were doing the long island circuit right apparently i, I have uh, yeah i I have a, a nephew, Roger, Roger Vi, right. and he was a little boy, but he was a huge fan, and and he would say to me, can, you know, can, can you get me tickets for Joe? And I said, well, I don't know him, you know, I, you know, it's easy enough. And he he got tickets, and he'd come to see you play, and he'd say, I saw Joe Bonamassa, it was amazing, it was a, it was just amazing. And then like a month later, he'd say, I'm gonna go to Joe Bonamassa again. I'm like, and like this was happening like every month for like years, yeah. it seemed like. Yeah, I, I remember meeting him. In a, in a, in oh a, yeah, in you a, met him in a, in a meet and greet. It was like a in the lobby. I was signing CDs, and oh. and he goes, "Yeah, you know, I, 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 like it was a, your 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 nephew or my nephew." Yeah, yeah. he goes, I'm, "I'm I'm I'm Steve Vai's nephew." I'm like, "Well, this is a small world," you know. <laughs> but you were touring like mad and still 
still do and still did and what did you do during the the lockdown if you weren't playing at home so much well, you know um i i produced a record for eric gales um oh yeah 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 which luckily i had the time to help him write it and and well we had the t everybody was off so we, we did a record and uh um this is not going to air today but we can announce it like the whole thing was it's it, it's a number one blues album well at least today whenever this airs right. it'll be whatever it's today <laughs> But um, congratulations! You know, thanks. You, you know, I, I I started producing records about four years ago, and I originally initially said no. I don't want anything to do with it. I didn't want yeah. any of the the Italian Catholic guilt of ruining someone's <laughs> record. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> the burning. It's, it's right here. You know. Yeah, yeah. And and I but I enjoyed the the first one I did was for Reese Wines, my keyboard player. And and I enjoyed the process. So Eric asked me to do the record, and and it was it was uh, it was a great experience producing an all original record for a colleague. That yeah. you know, it's it's hard to tell someone who's a better guitar player than you to do it <laughs> do it again and better. Can you do it better? <laughs> uh, well, as you as you know, it's all it's all subjective. But I got oh, thank you, Don. But what I what I have to say is that when I'm perusing the internet to be inspired by right. guitar players. And I, I, whenever I come across Eric, I'm just stunned. Yeah. That guy is so connected, you know? Right. So connected with what he's doing. It, it just, it doesn't even take many notes at all. So I'm glad you got a I'm glad you guys got together and did that. I bet it's fantastic. It, it came out great. And, you know, I've known him for almost 25 years. We were, we were kid prodigy, whatever, you know, back in the day. Yeah, I remember. And, and it was before internet, so we really couldn't communicate. I just knew about this kid from Memphis, and he knew about this kid from New York, and then we both knew about this slide player from Jacksonville, and it was like, you know, rarely would we meet, you know, because there was... Yeah. But, uh, you know, speaking in the, uh, inspiration, um, I, I, I was reading and I was listening to your records here. It was really great, by the way. Uh, Thank the, you. the new album's really great. And um, Inviolate, is that what I'm saying? Inviolate. Yeah, Inviolate. Inviolate. Yeah, right. In, in violet, the definition is the purest form of inspiration. You know, and and, and I and I just I, I thought about it for a minute. I said, man, I've never I've never looked at it like that. Like like because to me it's always like I got to make something sound like Hendrix or you or whatever. And and it's like you, you can't sometimes cut out the clutter that's the influences in your head. Yeah, we, and it, it, that would be impossible, you know, right, because right. every guitar player that we see has some kind of an effect on us in s some way. I, I know right. for me, I, you know, it may not it may not translate, but I love watching people play the guitar, no matter if they're like super accomplished or they're total shredders or they're jazz or fusion or blues. I just love watching people play, and every time I watch, I see. I, I, I feel something uh, or I see something and I and I feel inspired somehow you know so well, I think all of our influences are there we just yeah. kind of we kind of take them and mix them up with our own kind of creativity and and you've got that tremendously too I mean you've you're one of the most prolific artists you releasing tons of work really great quality work and constantly searching and finding that and the, and to, to get back to the word inviolate yeah it uh 
It was a great word that I, when I first heard it, I just thought that's a, it's a beautiful word in violet. And the meaning is uh, unable to violate, free from harm, unable to change or to uh, a, a touch or attack or in any way, you know. So I thought about that word a lot. I, I wasn't, uh, of course, you know, you say, hey, that would be a great name for a record. But you never really know until you get there. But I thought yeah. that would be a good name for a record. I like that, you know. And then um, I started to sort of meditate on that word. What what is inviolate? And I started looking it up. And you know, it's uh, it, there's nothing really in the in the world in the physical universe that is inviolate, you know, because everything's changing constantly, cha coming and going and coming and going, e except um, except us, our being. You know, it's like I. I the the use of the word is usually found in more like uh, spiritual connotations in reference to the human spirit, the inviolate nature of the human spirit. And I kind of, uh, play, you know, played around with it and, and impress and stuff. And uh, I see that as, you know, when, when, when we're getting creative, when we're being creative and we get an idea. You know, it's just like, it just arises in us. You know that feeling. And it, it comes complete with a vision and also of, of what we want to, maybe it's a song, maybe it's a riff, maybe it's something, maybe it's a whole concept for a record, but it, it comes and it, it, it has that feeling of enthusiasm. You know, it's like, right. yeah, I want to do this. <clears throat> yeah. And if we follow that, uh, we're, we're usually really engaging in those things that feel really good and natural to us and i kind of feel i'm kind of i kind of use the word inviolate also in reference to those inspirations that come to us that are kind of like completely suited for us you know like you you with your playing and all that could you imagine of, of like doing something else in life really no and i wouldn't be able to because yeah, me neither. terrible social skills. I would be horrible at retail. I, I'm not, <laughs> not inspired from any office environment, you know? It's, it, it's interesting because, you know, it, it's great to see you think so lyrically about instrumental music. Because mm. it's like, the thing I always love about your playing is, is it is a vocal. The melody that you're, you're, you're playing is a vocal. Obviously, yeah. then the improv parts, but it's like, it's like it, it, you don't miss the singer, you know. There's there's there's, there's some there's, there's some instrumental guitar players that clearly are just you, they're they're chomping to improv or solo, yeah. and and the the spirit of the song or lack thereof kind of goes away. But the, there's always a song, you know, with yeah. and, and and you can almost hear words as you're playing. You know, it's like these. Oh, thank you. I, I do make conscious efforts to because. Uh, you know, there most of the music is instrumental, and you got to get that point across. And I, I just love melody, and I always felt that, regardless of how much crazy stuff I do, it's got to have melody, right. or at least a melody that makes sense to me and and is the best that I can do. So I've always kind of chased that, and mixed it with all the kind of crazy, shreddy. Well, you know, um, I, I was asked one time, a long time ago, in an interview by a, a guitar magazine in England, and, and they, they, they asked me a question, um, and I had a kind of a, 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 a witty answer, I thought. They said, they asked me, like, why do you think Steve Vai and Joe Satriani um, and, 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 and 
not in instrumental music, but you know, because Eric Johnson sings a bunch. But it, it, particularly you two, why are they the most successful instrumental guitar players? You know, you know, of, of that time. I said we well, can add Jeff back into that, and I sure. also said I said I said I said one, they're Italian, which is a big deal. <laughs> we all stick together, and there's a there's a theme here, and two. I said both Steve and Joe have songs, mm -hmm. and the, and and that's the most important thing. When you go to a Steve Vai concert, you go to a Joe Satriani concert, or whoever you know Jeff Beck concert. There's songs. You're going. I hope he plays whatever. You yeah. know, and and that is the most important thing. And and honestly, the hardest thing to achieve, both lyrically and instrumental wise. Yeah. Uh, uh you know, one of the things I do and I, 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 I have done is, and you probably have done this, when you're actually playing, right. you, you sing a melody in your head or you speak words to the notes. Yeah. And, and this is really helpful for me because obviously it slows you down. And it, uh, you know, the way that we, we speak when we're communicating, there's so much inflection and also dynamics and articulations commas you know periods power you know, all of the way that we communicate with the human language that it has a dynamic curve to it yeah. and I always felt that that was um, th th those were elements of, of good melody you know to use things like space and commas and this kind of thing and one surefire way to see the evidence of it is when you speak something in your head when you're playing right yeah and and it, it becomes very humbling because you're you're limited mm -hmm. but an interesting thing happens based on the phrase that you're you're saying right. in your head and connecting with right. the music that you're playing the melodies with with the with the words it the, 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 the melody takes on the aroma of the intention of the sentence right do you know what i yeah. mean yeah, absolutely. Has anybody ever, like a friend of mine, I was just in the studio a couple of weeks ago, and a friend of mine was the engineer. He recorded me playing guitar with headphones on, and you couldn't hear the amp. So I was just doing a quick overdub, like a little eight-bar yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, I didn't realize you sang along when you played. I go, neither did I. Yeah, yeah. This video, and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going yeah. to Benson, but I'm like, I'm like, I'm singing what I'm playing. I, it, I never knew I did that. Because yeah, it's funny. It, it's the sub. It's the whole. The guitar is just an extension of what the, the human. Yeah, yeah. You just get you get locked in and connected, and that's the the most joyous aspect of playing. You know, just being connected. And I've seen you play. Well, I've I've, I've seen you play, but I've seen a lot of videos, and and I got uh, not all the records, but because there's a lot. There's a lot. But a lot of all the records. You have fifteen. <laughs> yeah, I don't even have all the records. <laughs> you don't even have all the records. No, I don't have all the records. They're like, they're like, hey, can you play this song? I'm like, did I, I did that when? I yeah, well, you can borrow mine. Yeah, they know the records better than me. You know? <laughs> um, you know, what I was thinking about today is in, you know, in two, 2022, and I'm just as guilty as I, probably the most guilty of, of all this is every every pro has a signature something. You know, in 1987, that wasn't the case. And this year is the 35th anniversary of the Steve Vai, the gem model. Gem, yeah. The gem 777. 
Yeah. And and I was looking it up, and I couldn't find the stats online, but I'd have to guess, other than the Les Paul, yeah, it's probably, I would be shocked if it wasn't the most successful signature guitar of all time because of how many, how many versions you've had and how yeah. many units you've sold of this guitar. Yeah, uh, we, we can never really know pure facts about anything. Right. But uh, the gem, the, the longer running guitar than the gem is the George Benson. George signed with Ibanez right. like a couple of months or something like that before me. Right. And, uh, but the gem has been just, I, I mean, it's wildly successful. It's so consistent over the last 35 years. It's unbelievable. I mean, what a blessing, you know, and it happens so innocently. Right. I just I, I built a guitar based on weird, quirky sensibilities of mine, right. and then you know when I started to hit the scene, the companies were interested in building, so I I built endorsements and I sent the guitar out, and inevitably they were interested in having me play their guitar and doing some little tweaks. Mm -hmm. You know that's basically what a signature series is. Unless it's like a whole rebuild, which is a lot more complicated, as you know, because they got to set up machinery and everything. And yeah, I didn't, yeah. I didn't really mind not having an endorsement. I just wanted to play this gem style guitar. And then I met Ibanez, and they just slammed it home. Right? They were like, they're like, sure, we'll cut a handle in it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Excuse me. Can you imagine, like in the '80s, this conservative Japanese country uh, co company thinking? He wants a handle. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> he wants Dayglow colors. Right. You know, and I was so kooky, and you know, we just did it. But the thing that really exploded with that guitar was uh, the the RG. Yeah. So the, R, the RG is sort of like it's like a gem without the hand and you know, handle and just a cheaper, uh, less. Uh, at the time, it was the lower end sort of model, and right. then you know the, it did so well. So, yeah, and I just kind of stumbled into it. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's so iconic because not many guitar designs are, you know, you look at it and you go, oh, who's, whose model is that? You're like, you see your guitar, you go, it's Steve, it's, it's, it's yeah. instantaneously associated with you. It's like, you're, it's your guitar, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, the, 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 the geek in me, it's like, I, I've sold in the last... 15 years with Gibson they gave they give me the stats and they're mostly Epiphones we've sold um, mm -hmm. somewhere around I think the last count was like 13,500 wow guitars and I go first of all I go man I've killed a lot of trees in the <laughs> and I felt bad and then I was like oh my god if, if I've sold that many I mean it must be in the hundreds of thousands I mean like it, it to, to me it's like it's so great that for 35 years, yeah. this thing has been so steadfastly consistent. It never went out of style. It, it never, it, it, was, it doesn't time stamp it. It's just a great design from the, from the bottom up and, that, and it oh, thank stands you. the test of time. Thank you. I was just so fortunate that lightning struck for me. And then when, the, when I did the seven string, oh my God, there was another one. But you know, it's interesting. The guitar came about when I was young uh, right. I was a teenager in the 70s, and right. I found right. Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix, Blackmore, Jeff Beck, you know, 
And I just absorbed all that. And I was listening to all sorts of different kinds of music. I like jazz. I like fusion. I like blues. I like rock. But I never really felt like I could play any of that stuff well. Right. You know, like tr I love traditional blues, but I, I the, the idea of, you know, when you're a kid, you just look at that and you, I, I, you know, I don't have any idea how to do that. Right. Right. So right. I just kind of accidentally started developing this style, you know. Yeah. I couldn't play anything else and then um, I started feeling like I, I loved strats because they had the whammy bar but I didn't like the single coil pickups the sound what right. it didn't it wasn't rock and roll enough for me at the time right. and then uh, I loved Les Pauls but uh, they didn't have whammy bars yeah but they sounded great and Jimmy Page played one and but I couldn't sit with them so I, I kind of like had these fake strats and fake Les Paul's Univox. Right. And then uh, finally I got a Strat, a good Strat, a real Strat. And I, I played that for years all the way through Zappa. But then I really started feeling like I wanted... And with Frank, working with Zappa, it was so amazing because that guy did whatever he wanted. Yes. You know, he would, he would take... He had like a, a Strat that Hendrix earned right. in, uh, in Florida. So, do you know that guitar? Miami Pop. Miami. Yeah. Yeah, and you know this is like a sacred to to some people. It's sacred, but Frank he he started just he changed out the pickups. He put parametric EQs in the guitar. You know he had all this stuff done, and and I just felt yeah he does whatever he wants. None of that stuff matters. So when I left uh, Frank and I started to extend my style a bit. And I, I had no idea what the future was going I, I, you know, I, you have no idea of these things. I just wanted to have a guitar that sit, that fit certain idiosyncrasies, you know. And what, being with Frank, I learned if you want it, you just do it. Right. Yeah. So I, I went to this store, a little store in Hollywood, and I had them, you know, to specs. I built something, and it had 24 frets and three-way pickups. So, so for me, it was the best of both worlds. And that turned into the gem. Yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, that's the thing. It's with the you know, I'm a big guitar collector, and and you know, there's there's certain things. It's like it's like now it's like uh, if you refret an old guitar, there will be people online going, "You're you're you are desecrating Leo's yeah. creation." You know. <laughs> it, 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 yes. Well, it's got to play. It's like you don't drive it's a car play. with a flat tire. You know. Yeah. And, but it seemed like back because back then old guitars or whatever guitars it was they weren't as certainly not as expensive as they are now. <laughs> there was no nobody thought twice about hacking into a Lake Placid Blue '62 Strat. Nobody cared. It was like it was a three hundred dollar yeah. guitar, and they right. and it was more about it, and, and it was more about the sound, you yeah. know, and, and and trying to push the barriers of of you know where where it kind of ended in the 70s and the 80s was like it was like this whole new world i mean it was like yeah. very rarely would see a les paul until slash came along in 88 very rarely right. would you see you know those yeah. like a strat or a you know unless yeah. it was robert cray or stevie or you know whoever but but it was um it's like a whole new time and yeah did you start out on a strat i started out on a um japanese import strat copy called a jb player and oh yeah i know i know that company my my I, wife yeah my wife played bass in in a band called vixen and back right. then they all had jb player instruments 
Yeah, and, and I think they were owned, I want to say they were owned by, I don't know, Hondo, or, or I, it was some larger corporate thing. And I, I just remembered it was, it was candy, a Dakota Red with a black pick guard and some fake Kaler. It wasn't even a real Kaler. It was a fake yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. Imagine, yeah. imagine how that tuned up. And, <laughs> and a matching headstock. And I liked it for one reason only because it said, it said JB player. And I go, it's got my initials on it. How can you pass that up? Yeah. yeah but you know what I want to ask you, brother? Uh, I'm a huge Danny Gatton fan. Yes. I actually have uh, a volume. The volume knob that I have on uh, my Evo, a guitar I call Evo, is from one of Danny's guitars. Oh, really? That's great. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you took lessons from him. I did take lessons. I was very lucky to run into him. I ran into him at the Silver Lake, New York Blues Festival and Pig Roast. And this is how it worked. It was Clarence Gate Mount Brown was the headliner. Danny was the second act, and it was a couple of local bands. They would bury a, a, a pig in the ground on hot coals. Yeah, yeah. At like seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. The band started at eleven. The headliner was done by four p.m. and then they would unearth the pig and and sell sandwiches. And that's how I met. And. I do that. I do that with uh, musicians at the end of a tour. Yeah, it's exactly. I bury them and let them cook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, we. It, I was sitting with the opening act, and he came up to me and he goes, "Hey, kid, I see you got a Telecast. You want to see a really cool one?" So he pulls out this '53 Tele, and I'm like, "What planet am I on?" You know, I've never yeah, seen yeah. like that up close. Yeah. And. We just became friends, and he would invite my father and I down to these gigs he would do here in New York and, and, and Boston, a place called Johnny B's, and, and then the Cat Club here, and mm -hmm. a place called the 930 Club in uh, D.C. or Jazz Alley. And basically, it was like he had a lot of time. He had a Winnebago, and he'd be like, who's bored? And he'd be like, here, kid, let me show you something, you know? The next thing you know, I was uh -huh. like, you, don't know, you don't know who Hank Garland is, do you? I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> you, you, you don't know who, uh, you know, you know, he's like, you don't know Les Paul. And I said, no, it's a guitar. And he's like, no, nah, it's a guy. Let me see. You know, he was very, he gave, my whole world went from mono to stereo. So is that basic, was that basically the, uh, the paradigm shift for you? Yeah, that was the paradigm shift where I was not. At that point, I was a I was on a very straight and narrow blues pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. if it wasn't Clapton, if it wasn't Muddy Waters, if it wasn't Stevie Ray. I was not, Ronnie Earl. I was not interested. Yeah. And then I then my whole world kind of like exploded, and I go, I don't know anything about the roots of rock and roll. I don't know anything about jazz. I don't know anything. And I said, man, I have a lot more work to do than I thought. You know to and then, then it just started to kind of come to fruition. So, so what, what were some of the things that he kind of showed you? Like, where, how, did, how did he open up your... He would show me, he would give me little things, like, to work on. He'd make a tape at home. I still got the cassettes. He'd make a tape at home. And then he'd be like, try this. And he, he, he goes, your, your picks are too big. So he got me on these little picks. Ah, and, um, Which were Fender picks with his name on them. I still got a couple that he gave me. Um, it was a Fender teardrops, but now I use these Dunlop 
jazz three things. It's the same kind. It's just a little. Yeah. Yeah. Playing the hybrid technique with my, you know, pick. Ah, okay. Yeah. And got me to start rolling stuff like a banjo player, you know, so you can kind of. Yeah. And I, I just, I just thought it was just so cool because it was the stuff I would hear. And then I never could figure out how they could get so yeah. many notes in a, yeah. you know. That was and good. Yeah. Just, it was just stuff like that. And it was just hours of, you know, just, you know, two guys, um, two guys, uh, you know, or just connecting them. Yeah, just connecting on. I had, I had good luck. Yeah, sorry. I, I had good luck like that too. In that, I, I had good luck like that too. In that, the town I grew up in, Joe Satriani grew up in the same town. Yeah, and he was about four years older than me, and he was a guitar teacher. And I, I started taking lessons for Joe from Joe when I was twelve, and and took wow. lessons for like uh, you know five years. And uh, uh, boy, what a great opportunity! Because he was always great too. You know, even when he was a kid. Yeah, I was. It's one of my. That was one of my questions. I was, it was one of my questions. Like, rate Joe Satriani as a guitar instructor, because not many people could say they took lessons from. from you know. You know, I. I, but, I mean, there must have been for you guys where you looked at each other in like 1988, 89. You know, when both both your records had exploded, and you guys are two of the biggest names in guitar. I'm like, how the hell did we pull this off from Long Island? You know what I mean? I know all the it's time we got, You know. Yeah, all the time. It's a marvel. We just look at each other and go, "Is how did this how did this happen? We grew up like blocks away from each other, you know, and uh, and we've been joined at the hip. It's been a really nice friendship and, and partnership in a lot of respects because we would tour together and record, right. you know, stuff together. And and uh, and we kind of like are carved out of the same ilk, Italian boys from Long Island, right. you know, <laughs> and uh, exactly. But it was just so amazing. I, I, at times, I went and took lessons from various players. You know, I took jazz lessons from somebody around the same time. I was taking some classical lessons just to kind of get that going. And then what Joe, like, split for Japan. He, he lived in Japan for, I think, six or seven months. And then he went to California. So I would always grab him whenever he was around. But when he wasn't, right. and I would go out and try to take lessons, I realized not only then, but even way later in life, that he was the the most outstanding teacher I've ever ever had anywhere, because he wow. balance. I mean, for music, music and guitar, because he he shared everything. He shared everything, yeah. and he was he was kind of strict, you know. Like mm -hmm. I remember one time I he. he one lesson was like my second lesson, you know, or something. And he said, memorize all the notes on the neck, you know. So I'm th and come back next week and know all the notes and memorize them cold, you know. And I thought, I'm not going to, I don't have a good memory. I, I, you know, it was one of these kind of, it was like a homework assignment. And I, I didn't think that I was capable of yeah, doing yeah. it. So I, I spent little time trying to memorize the notes and I walked into my lesson, and Joe says, play an F sharp on the B string. And I go, uh, and he goes, stop, leave. <laughs> and wow. I, yeah, and, and, and don't come back till you know the notes, you know. And that was, that was, that, that was a, a, that experience was pivotal for me. 
because I decided in that moment that I was never ever going to not know my lesson 100%, prop maybe even 200% where I do twice as much, you know. And um yeah, he was a great teacher. He shared everything. At some at one point towards the end, you know, the lessons turned into like 6-hour jams in his backyard where we would just sit back to back and right. just play and play and play and it was just fantastic. It's it's so, you know, I had one guitar teacher was like that. It was it was he took it super serious and he expected you to do the same. Yeah. And I always I always respected that because it was like, you know, just because it's a guitar lesson doesn't mean it's any less important than anything you're doing. You know, if you're you're serious about, you know, knowing and and, and learning and playing, and you know, it's I I, lo I love that. I love. Yeah, that. and you got to have the right teacher. You know, it's funny. You I was. Have the right teacher. Yeah, I was recently approached by uh, Julianne's Auctions to like put on a big auction. I thought, well, this is good timing because I got so much stuff at this point right. I got I got to get rid of it you know I got to get rid of some stuff and uh, and it's charity it's all great and I was up in my attic going through stuff and I found the original guitar case for my first Strat that I got when I was 17 wow. and wow. and I'm going through all these other boxes in the attic you know and I'm coming across whoa here here's the the, the three the original three position switch you know here's right. a spring yeah. you know and here here's a whammy bar and they're all like you know rusted and, and stuff and i opened the case and I, I go to put the stuff in the case and there in the case i found all of my lessons with satriani oh wow That's yeah amazing. and it was a lot you know and, I, and i'm going through and it's like they're ah you know and it was just so great to see them again and still don't know some of them right <laughs> <laughs> i have a, I, you know one of the things um Guitar players of my generation, we grew up watching things. We didn't have YouTube. We'd you have MTV. You'd have, you know, whatever, late night television, which I wasn't allowed to stay up to. And then, my, and then my father snuck me in without my mother's permission to go see a movie about the blues called Crossroads. All right. <laughs> I remember being in, being in the theater, being scared shitless by Jack Butler. Yeah, and it's surreal for me to be talking to the man who played Jack Butler, yeah. and I, I rewatched that scene today because it's been a while, and I said, to, I, I noticed two things. I said, I never, I never thought about it in this way. I said the hardest thing about all of that, the 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 the, the, the you know the what's it called uh, Eugene's trick bag or whatever yeah. the, the song's called. The hardest thing about that, probably for Steve to have accomplished, is screwing it up. And listen to it, because at the end, when when Jack Butler doesn't can't can't match the the, yeah. the, the, the Eugene the riff, yeah, exactly. And it must have been hard for you, like, to have it be so well, fluent on that. It, it was must have been hard to be like, how can I screw this up to where it's believable? But you did. Well, that's a very interesting story, I'll tell you. It was the first real movie I was in, and uh, originally Ry Cooter approached me because they were trying to get it to work with various guitar players, but they, it would turn into like a trading jam, you know, and it just wasn't working because this, it's drama, it's the karate kid, you know, so I read the script and I'm like, yeah, I, 
you know, because I'm a ham, you know, and I like theater. And uh, so I, I said, yeah, we would, you know, we, so we built this duel. So it kind of goes like this. And um, towards the end, and it's kind of written in the script what to what to do. Like the script says, Jack Butler kicks off and his guitar sounds like a freight train coming, right? So I'm like, oh, I know what to do. I'm going to tune down and go, gong, gong, ch -ch gong, gong, you know? And um, then towards the end, it says, uh, because he's playing against a blues uh, player, um, right. supposedly Jack Butler was a blues player. I, I did my right. best, yeah. you know? And, right. <laughs> and um, but the way Eugene beats him, is that he starts mixing classical influences and this chokes Jack Butler, you know, he, it makes him choke. Yeah. So there's, so I had to come up with something that had a classical influence, but then kind of transcended into something a little more contemporary and, and a little bluesy. So I, I did that fast thing, you know, and then at the end, we go back and forth and then, um, Ralph has to, Ralph does this riff and then I have to do it and I'm totally lost because well Jack Butler right, has yeah. to do it because he he doesn't understand classical music right so right. I did it and and of course it's all pre-recorded I pre-recorded something that I would choke on right so I did it I did it and this took right. yeah. the whole the whole scene took like 14 18 hour days right and they built this giant wow, that long. Yeah, yeah, and they built this giant church uh, on the Burbank lot, you know, and they had all the extras there, and it was this, you, I mean, the devil's church, you know, and it, 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 we did the whole thing, actually it was 12 days, and I, I did the last thing, and I lost, right? right? A month later, they called me up. They were in the edit bay, and the director was watching everything, and he did not feel that I lost bad enough. It wasn't obvious that I had lost. And, you know, me, I'm like, well, people have to know that I'm messing up. But he's like, no, you're still playing, you know. So, right. so right. they actually rebuilt the entire Devil's Church and got all the people back in. And I, I remember because I had to find the same clothes and I had to do my hair. You know, everything had to be the same yeah. to shoot that one scene. And I had to re-record it so it looked like I, I screwed up. Worse than I did the first time, you know? And uh, so that's actually what happened there. I didn't screw up bad enough. <laughs> yeah. and, that, and that was what I was thinking. I was like, I, like, you know, because if you know something so well, and you can play it in your sleep, you know, and to, to purposely sound like you're struggling, it, it, it's harder than it looks to. It is. Yeah, because it, it, it'll look fake. It'll look, it'll look right. like pushed or forced, you know, and, you know, when you go to play something and you try to mess it up, it's like, no, 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 he's, 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 he's doing that on purpose, you know, but we got through it and it was a uh, very interesting to me how that movie had such an impact because, you know, you can make hit records, but you do, you, you appear in one hit movie and it's like, it's different, you know. It's different. I mean, it, it, that. I mean, people must have been coming up down the street going, Jack Butler, Jack. Yeah, Butler, you know? like, so, yeah. For for like for several years, you know, they're like, hey, you're that guy, and then they think you're a really mean guy because Jack Butler was a jerk. Well, you know, I mean, it was exactly. You know, it's like how do you like? You're like, wait a minute, I've been. 
branded, uh, it's not the same. Art and life are not the same. You know, the, the, the thing I always, I always was so impressed by was the fact that you played it clean and distorted. You know, uh, and yeah. when I heard that, I was like, whoa, man. And every, speaking of lessons, every kid in my generation who was serious about guitar yeah. had to learn that thing. <laughs> and if you could do it, every sorry, week, guys, you were king, you know. And it was well, like, you know, I, when I did that clean part when Eugene is playing, that's, that's tripled. I tripled it because right. I wanted it to really, you know, really sound uh, large. It, that that uh, sounded like you played it on a Strat to me. I always thought it was like on a, or at least the front two pickups of a Fender style guitar. I, I, you know, I think it was because right. I couldn't use my guitar because it would sound too similar. Right, and I and if and back then my go-to alternates were always strats. Yeah, and then and then you, you could tell when you had your own guitar in your rig because it was that sound. You know what I mean? Yeah, that was. Really? A, you know what was great about doing that movie was working with Ry Cooter. Did you ever work with him? Met him one time, and I was starstruck. It was like the time yeah. I met Tom Waits. And you met Tom? I met, I met Tom Waits randomly, and I can talk to anybody. Tom yeah. Waits made me. Starstruck and Ry Cooter made me starstruck, and all Ry yeah. did was talk about how how Leo Fender and Ted McCarty ripped off Paul Bigsby, and I just <laughs> sat there at, at at True Tone Music in Santa Monica and was like, "Yes, sir. Yes, sir." You know. <laughs> well, that's that's crazy. interesting. I feel the same way. Isn't that weird? Tom Waits is my my number one favorite living artist. You know, and um, I've I've had the opportunity to meet him several times and it's the same kind of thing because you you look and you just what this person did for you and the brilliance that's there you know how how he hears his music and the atmospheres that he captured and just the lyrics and everything and there and then there he is going high you know and you're like yeah <laughs> yeah i mean like you just like when i met tom waits i just kept going this is the man whose opening line to Jockey Full of Bourbon was Edna Million in a drop dead suit, duck yeah. <laughs> in a tower down tree. You're like, what is going on in there to make that come onto paper? You, you know right. what I mean? It's like, it's just genius. I mean, it's it's really, stuff, you know? Yeah, totally inspired. And, and I recognize that about Rye also working on Crossroads. Because when I was um, before that, I, I heard Rye, you know, I, I listened to him. Uh, and I was really, I, I, liked, I liked the earthiness, the rawness. There was always space around everything that he did. And, yeah. and the tone always came through. And when I got into the studio with him, I learned so much because that guy, he just does it. You know, he's not like, okay, let's t do a second take or, you know, you, you, you do it and that's it. And he was always on. And the funny thing happened. I had, you know, I had a totally different setup, obviously. I'm all electronics and you know distorted tone and all that stuff delay and i had my my rig there and i had a delay setting on that was probably about i don't know 250 milliseconds going left right so you go bump 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 yeah. bump and rise like what is that and i'm like well i got the you know left side doing this and, and he's joe this guy sat down man and you know when 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 rye gets his foot going that's yeah. it the, the universe yeah. wants to know what time it is, is right there in Rye Cooter's right, yeah. foot, you know? Right. And he just does that, and then he started playing with the delay, and he had never done anything like that. 
And I'm watching this guy in stunned amazement how beautiful and musical, you know, and, and how he adopted to playing with the delay instantly and making like just gorgeous music. And when he gets going like this, it's a sight to see, man. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was one of the greatest that, things I got from Crossroads. <laughs> well, I mean, it was the two the two guitar masterpieces was 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 your your playing and and uh, I think he called it feeling bad blues that that slow slide thing that he did that you know just yeah oh so beautiful it's at, the, it's at the end of the movie or after the after the scene after the scene that you cut it was the one after and yeah. you just you know I mean but that was back in the time when when it was like. You know, we didn't see that every day. It was so, I mean, it was so profound to to players that are just going, this is the best of everything right here. Best of guitar. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the things that aided in Crossroads um, having that kind of effect is that you're right. Back then, there was, you couldn't go to YouTube and watch all the greatest unknown guitar players in the world and get blown away. You know, you had to wait till something came on TV or the big screen. And uh, Crossroads and that guitar performance um, came at like the perfect time because people didn't have access to go see everybody. Mm -hmm. So that was nice. I was mad because I was was like 10, maybe 9 or 10, and it was a PG-13 movie. Ah! and my, my father snuck me in because he was like, you got it. Because it was, like, it was all over the TV. It was like a movie about the blues. I mean, like, come on. It was like this, this was the, the film, film I've yeah. been waiting for, you know? Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, one of the things uh, I want to ask before we wrap up is what inspired you to transcribe the black page? I mean, <laughs> we, we, we all get up in the morning the same, you know, and, and you go, oh, maybe I'll have some coffee. Maybe I'll... I'll work on some new music. You got up one morning, like you know. I think I'm like this would be a great idea. Let me let me let me put pen to paper and transcribe this almost insurmountable object of, yeah. of music that Zappa wrote. Yeah, I found that in the attic too. <laughs> my wow. original my original transcription. Well, you know, it's the kind of thing where I before I started playing the guitar, even when I was very very young, I was in introduced to compositional music it was the music from West Side Story and I understood what it was you know because like all good Italian guys from Long Island I played accordion when I was nine so I I, you're right you know so I got to I started to learn how to read music and all and I always wanted to compose you know I always I loved the little black dots and I, I would doodle them and then I started composing as soon as I owned manuscript paper you know I was just whatever it was i didn't really know what it was but i was doing it and then eventually i i learned what it was and i i just loved the process of of writing notes so transcribing offers a lot of that because all you do is sit there and listen and then you know you write it down and uh i started doing that and then when i was at college i uh, at berkeley you get assignments to transcribe right so around that time maybe i was 18 19 zappa released live in new york and it had the black page on it when i heard that melody i i was so so these are the kinds of things that you know get to me you know right that melody was it sounded profound to me it was obtuse you know it it had these rhythmic values that didn't feel or sound like anything i had ever 
heard and the melody in itself is was enchanting you know that it's beautiful gorgeous melody with these unbelievable rhythms that I, I i couldn't understand so i started to you know i knew it was obvious to hear the beat and and i was coming across these things that i just had no idea I said, okay yeah that's five notes that's a quintuplet but what about this you know and then i met terry bozio at a uh uh-huh. a uk gig and i was 18 and he was he was playing in uk and i corn i got backstage yeah. and i cornered him and I started, I started talking about the black page, and then he explained it to me, how Frank would take, like, one bar of four four and put three half notes on it, to make three notes over four, and then take each one of those half notes and subdivide them, and then take the subdivisions and subdivide those into um, like tuplets. So you had nested tuplets inside of nested tuplets, and once I grasp the concept of that and trust me growing up i was an extraordinarily average or under average student and a, a, right. a, a, a not good failing student in virtually all categories except music and math you know right. so this this really intrigued me and then i started to get into the polyrhythmic aspect and the whole concept of what it was and, and like my i was my mind was blown and then I that's all I wanted to do was listen to that stuff and write it down and I did that and I sent it to Frank and he he was impressed enough to uh, hire me to transcribe you know he wanted to try me for the band but I was 18 and he said no, you're too young so for a couple of years I started transcribing and then when I moved out to California and joined the band I was still transcribing and one of my one of my duties was back in the day in order to copyright a piece of music, you have to you had to have a lead sheet and send it to Washington. And Frank had, you know, it, I had to. My job was to go through his entire catalog and make sure there was appropriate lead sheets and stuff on file and sent to Washington, you know, for the copyright. So I I was doing that a lot. I I, I always tell people it's like, you know, I live in Laurel Canyon, so it's like. I, and, and I said, up the street here is where our house, so very, very, you know, Graham Nash wrote that song, you know, about his house with Joni Mitchell. And I said, just over there is where Frank Zappa wrote The Black Page. The music yeah. that has come out of these canyons is, couldn't be more diametrically opposed sometimes. It's not, it's not, it was not all peace and love and, and flower children. It was like, yeah. there was some serious stuff going on, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, and that whole Laurel Canyon about, back then, that, that, that Laurel Canyon back then was like a den of iniquity, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, much. My, my house, I have pictures. I have pictures of the Rolling Stones in the backyard in the in the 1960s on a hammock, right? And it's been owned by three guitar players in a row, and <laughs> before that was owned by Rudger Hauer, the Dutch the Dutch action star. And in the 70s, which was probably the pinnacle of, it, it, you know, whatever was going on, the, um, the house was owned by the biggest cocaine dealer in all of uh, uh, Laurel Canyon, you know, all of West Hollywood. So the, the, the kind of stuff that was going on, now it's just full of guitars and amps and it's peaceful. But imagine, like, yeah. I couldn't imagine what was happening. Yeah. Well, know? at some point you might find where the bones are buried. My friend Ollie, who, who owned it in the early 90s, they, he redid the bedroom. 
and he keeps telling me stories like, we went into the closet, we went to demo the, 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 the sheetrock, and uh, we were gonna just take out the closet. He goes, behind the wall, I found like big wads of cash and guns and- like, What, really? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa. You gotta be careful saying that. You're gonna have people come into your house with uh, pitchforks and jackhammers. <laughs> There's no cash left. There's like 200 bucks in the drawer for the, for the man, yeah. you know? <laughs> so but Joe, I, what do you got coming up now? We're, what I'm doing is, uh, we're, we're, by the time this will air, I mean, we'll be on tour. We're going on tour for a month and knock on wood. Yeah. You know, America? Yeah. We're going to, we got to, uh, this is, we'll be, first leg is America and then we're going to go back uh, to Europe for the first time now in almost three years. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it, you know. Yeah. I think we're at the tail end of it. It feels like we're at the tail end of yeah, it. Yeah. People want to get back to normal. And, and you know, I think there's going to be a few holdouts, which is fine. But as, as far as I'm, you know, concerned, it's like if you're comfortable, I'm comfortable being there. If you're comfortable being there, you know what I mean? Right. It's like, yeah, yeah. I feel more comfortable now because we uh, we actually had we got COVID, me and my family, back right. around Christmas, and and you know, it, it wasn't fun, but it wasn't that bad, and it went away quickly, and. Now, you know, as, as they say, you got some immunity, so that's nice. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I had, I was, I was one of the ones, I had it in December of 2020, so I was like... I oh, really? The, so that, you had COVID-COVID. I had the OG, you know? Yeah. And I'm really prone to sinus infections. I don't know, like, the, the viewers would be like, what did they get? You know, anyway, um, I'm really prone to sinus infections, and I was very lucky because my COVID experience was a three-day event. I felt bad for two. I felt better the third day, and by the fourth, I feel like I do today, normal. And I was like, wow, this is kind of weird. But I also know people that have had a real, real run in it. You know, I mean, like, yeah, it took down for a month. You know, yeah, it depends. It depends. It's like it, it, it. It's almost like no rhyme or reason to, to figure out. You know, but uh, you know, we we we'll. we'll put our best foot forward all the time and yeah, i'm glad I, I, to hear you're going out so, are you going to so be in la i'm going to be in la when when the, when the tour is done I, I as you can see i have a place here in the city uh, you know new york italians eventually go back to their home i mean that's right. kind of, it's just it's do you have a place on long island no, I don't have a place on Long Island, but I do know the my, my manager does, and and I do know that you have to say on Long Island, not in Long Island. There's a big on Long Island. Okay. It's <laughs> very no, but it's uh, I grew up upstate, but you know I oh upstate, I yeah. And, where and where, where upstate did you grow up? A little, a little town called Utica, New York. Oh, Utica! And, I know Utica very well. I used to go up. Do you yeah. know Oxtonburg? Yeah. Yeah, that I my uncle owned a farm right up there in Huvelton, and I love it up. That's a beautiful co country up there. It's beautiful, you know. It's, a, it's very picturesque, very much like uh, it's almost like it almost looks like Holland in some ways, but only a little more yeah. mountains and stuff. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you think you're gonna go back there? No, never, never, never. <laughs> I've escaped. I've escaped. You know. Yeah. Um, I'll, I still love California, you know, it, they make yeah. it hard these days to love it, but I still have yeah. been out there 20 years. And, wow. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm just trying, listen, I'm just trying to, I'm just an Italian kid trying to keep the good name of Italian guitar players alive. It's, it's, you know, well, you got a lot of, you got, you got a lot of support there because you got Satch, you got John Petrucci, you've, uh, there's so many, you Jimmy know, Ola. Jimmy Ola. 
Al will even cook you dinner if you pay him enough money. To get <laughs> well, he'll be cooking me a dinner next month. They're coming to stay yeah. here. Yeah, but uh, he's a. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting in in the. It's when you think about it, it's like East Coast Italian guitar players, and I always tell people it's like it's because it was the winters start in October and don't don't relent until May. That's all yeah. we had to do is sit in our house and and. Exactly. and and play you know yeah. like I, I went back to new york last week and we uh, left on a wednesday and we were going to come home on a saturday and on saturday they had like a blizzard like right. i haven't seen anything like this in a, in a long time it was a blizzard and the whole time our flights got canceled and everything and it was fantastic right. snow you know over the little town that i grew up in it was great it's the best when you have the nor'easters here yeah, it's like, like when it, the, the snow first falls, the city shuts down. It's like a yeah. winter, and then the next day when it starts to melt, and you get those puddles that look like oh yeah, tape, and they're about this deep, and you step <laughs> in one. It's never fun. Thanks for well, doing I, this, man. I really yeah, appreciate thank it. you so much, Joe. You're doing so Later. good, and I'm so happy that you invited me on this. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm honored, and I love the new album. You know, congrats. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think at this point you've probably lost count how many times you've been on the cover of uh, Guitar World. But uh, I, I just picked up my uh, copy at the at the newsstand down the street, and it was like, I was like, look at this, look at this triple neck thing. It's even got a harp on it, and yeah, <laughs> you know, the ham is cooking. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but, All right, but, uh, brother. Well, thank you so much, and uh, I hope to see you on tour sometime or what yeah, next time yeah, you're playing. Absolutely. Well, we're going right to try. On. Thanks for all the, the the help and advice for people that uh, don't know. I mean, I, I, several times when I was out and I wanted to buy a particular amp, I, I, I would write to Joe, and I'd say, <laughs> Joe, what do you think about this? And you, you set me straight on a lot of things. Hex the Attic. I, 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 I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you know. It's like, yep. Yes. No. So ladies and gentlemen, Steve Vai, this has been a random episode of uh, live from uh, Nerdville. We've, we, we haven't done them in a while. And, and I said, I'm only going to do them on special occasions. So this is oh, thank you. very touched. Thank you. Well, thank All right, you, brother. You. We'll see you. All right, man. I'll see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. Thank you.